uh, and verse 28. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And now across to chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her hand, Mill." and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Down to verse 21 of chapter 12. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. Please join me. Lord, we do indeed ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, this morning. Uh, speak to us through this uh, passage of Scripture which you've preserved for our benefits. As it records these historical events, we pray that we would uh, see more clearly uh, who you are uh, and aspects of your character which you intentionally revealed to us, uh, that we would then live in the light of it. Uh, amen. As we all know, actions speak louder than words. Uh, what we do reveals more about our heart and our character than 
often what we say. Promises mean nothing without proof. As the saying goes, talk is cheap. Uh, Dale Carnegie, the American writer, has this wisdom to share with us. Uh, Pay less attention to what people say, just watch what they do. Uh, Benjamin Franklin adds his own uh, gem of wisdom, uh, the founding father of the United States. He says this, or did say this, uh, well done is better than well said. You may want to use that one yourself at a party. Actions speak louder than words. Promises mean nothing without proof. In the unfolding narrative of the Bible, uh, God has made startling promises of blessing and benevolence. Uh, They are promises to reverse the curse, that is the curse of the fall. They are promises to restore what was lost at God's people, living in God's place, under God's blessing and under His rule. And yet, dark and foreboding forces now stand in the way of God fulfilling those promises. As things stand, God's people living in a beautiful land of their own, under God's blessing, seems like a distant prospect. Uh, Rather, God's people are enslaved. They're in a land not their own, and they're in the grip of the then superpower, Egypt. For God to keep His Word, it would seem it would require a miracle, the liberation of a million people who provide a priceless source of free labor to the Egyptian economy. Why on earth would they let them go? And yet, that is exactly what God has said He will do. Uh, Thus far, the situation does not seem to be heading in the right direction. Uh, With contemptuous derision, the Pharaoh has already rebutted at the request of Yahweh via Moses for the people's release. Uh, Instead, the Pharaoh has made the bondage of the Israelites more severe. And so, with the failure of diplomacy, God signals that the time for action has come. Exodus 6 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Uh, The use of force is now sanctioned, and an eerie silence descends on Egypt as it waits the commencement of hostilities. So, at the beginning of Exodus chapter 6, the stage is set and the battle lines are drawn. And the chapters that follow record a series of devastating plagues that God inflicts on the Egyptians. Uh, We didn't have time to look at them, all of them, uh, but they were those intervening chapters between chapters 7 and 10. And all of these plagues are in response to Pharaoh's refusal to release the Israelites. Uh, Some of the plagues happen unannounced, but frequently each plague is preceded by a command and a sanction if the command is rejected. For example, chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they may worship me. 
if you refuse to let them go, and then the next plague is announced. And what are these plagues? Firstly, uh, the Nile is changed into blood. Uh, It threatens the whole livelihood of the Egyptian economy and basis for life. Uh, Next comes the plague of frogs, followed by the plague of gnats, followed by the plague of flies. Then comes a plague on the livestock, causing a decimation of their livestock. Uh, Then boils on the skin of the Egyptian people. And then a cataclysmic hailstorm. And after that, a devastating plague of locusts that devour everything green that remains. And then total darkness for three days. Even though the country is in, now in utter ruins and the economy in freefall and the share market has crashed, Pharaoh still stands tall and defiant. Nine plagues have been inflicted thus far, but the stage is now set for the final act. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he will let you go. And the plague that God announces is indeed terrible, that the death of every firstborn male in Egypt, both human and in the livestock. And the event that is to follow will be of so, such great significance that it will actually reset the Jewish calendar. Uh, Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Yet the Israelites have work to do in preparation for this plague. For unless they follow God's instructions exactly, they too will fall victim to it. Each family is instructed to select a one-year-old blemishless male lamb from their flock and to care for it in their homes for four days. Then in the gathering dust of the 14th day of the month, they are to kill the lamb and to daub its blood over the doorpost of their house. Uh, Then they are to roast the lamb, to eat it, and to wait. Their bags are to be packed, and their hiking sandals are to be worn. Chapter 12, verse 11 says this, "Uh, This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so, the Israelites huddle in their homes that first Passover night, and they wait. At first, the night was still, 
But then the sound of lament and wailing could be heard. It started with an isolated cry, but it grew into an awful chorus rising up from all the Egyptian households. And with the death of his own son, the Pharaoh finally acknowledges that he is beaten. No conditions now are set. He capitulates totally. It is now complete surrender to the Lord, to Yahweh. Chapter 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and he said, Up, leave my people. You and the Israelites go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said. Go and also bless me. What an incredible turn of events. Who would have ever thought that it could come to this? The seemingly impossible has become actual and reality. What God said to Moses he would do at the burning bush has now come to pass by God's mighty hand. There is more going on here than meets the eye. Uh, True, God is working to the goal of releasing His people from slavery. But He is also building His relationship with His people. Remember, God's promises to Abraham amounts to people, land, blessing, and relationship. And God is revealing to them now the sort of God He is. And he's doing that to further deepen his relationship with them. You see, God's agenda is not just liberation, but also revelation. Uh, We've seen previously that through Moses, God discloses for himself a new name which reveals new aspects of his character, previously unknown. His name is Yahweh. Uh, translated in our Bibles and represented as the Lord in uppercase letters. He is the I Am. But of course, actions speak louder than words. And through His actions, God will give profound depth to the meaning of His name, Yahweh. We see that Yahweh is the mighty judge and the mighty rescuer. He rescues and He judges out of faithfulness to His promises. Uh, We've seen before, haven't we, this formula in the Bible. Event plus explanation equals revelation. Uh, The two have to go hand in hand. The event, the actions, plus the explanation, God's Word. And with those two together, we understand more of who God is. Revelation. And so it is. The words of God now go hand in hand with the actions of God. And the end result is knowledge of God. It's interesting that knowledge is the key theme woven throughout these chapters. Uh, Did you notice uh, last week, or last time we looked at this passage, the Egyptian pharaoh, he says he doesn't know Yahweh and therefore has not the slightest intention of obeying him. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That is Yahweh. That I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let him go. 
Pharaoh's saying, I've no knowledge of this God of yours. And yet, through God's dramatic events and explanation, word and action, a former ignorance about God, about Yahweh, will be replaced with a reverent knowledge of Yahweh. Chapter 7, verse 5. God says this, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And so you see, through these events that unfold, the heart of God is glimpsed. We see God's passions. We see what moves Him to action. We see revelation, real knowledge of God. So the question is this, uh, what does God reveal about Himself, about His character, about His heart through these events? And the first thing we've seen, which we've seen previously and now is reinforced through what happens, is God is the mighty judge. After nine plagues, it seems that absolutely nothing has been achieved. Uh, True, at a couple of points, Pharaoh has wavered in his resistance. However, in each case, uh, he has then had a change of heart and reverted to hardening his heart. He seems as implacable and as stubborn as ever. Uh, Of course, as I've said, uh, there is more going on than just securing the Israelites' freedom. God has a bigger agenda. And just prior to the seventh plague of hail, God acknowledges this. Pardon me. Look at this, chapter 9, verse 15. God says this, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you from the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What, are these, what is the purpose of these plagues? That God might show the Egyptians his mighty power. You see, God could have hit the red nuke button for plague number one. But he didn't. In some way, the fact there are ten plagues demonstrates the extent of God's power and that there is nobody like him in all the earth. And we get a clue as to how the ten plagues demonstrates God's power when it comes to the final plague. Chapter 12, verse 12. God says, on that same... On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, Yahweh. Do you see? The plagues are God's judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And God's judgment reveals something of God's heart. It reveals that for God, idolatry is not okay. Idolatry is deeply offensive to Yahweh, and it incurs His judgment. You see, the Egyptians were what we'd call religious pluralists. 
Uh, They were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. Uh, They weren't denying that the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, existed, but they were saying to him, uh, he was of no relevance. If you were to meet an Egyptian in the street at the time and to talk with them, uh, they would probably say something to the effect of, look, uh, we have our gods, uh, you have yours, why should we convert or obey or listen to your God? And yet, such an attitude does not sit well with the one and only God who has made all. Pardon me. He is rightly jealous and he is deeply offended at his glory being given to another. When we fast forward to the prophet Isaiah, midway through the Bible, in chapter 42, verse 8, we see this. God says, I I am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And so with each plague, God is effectively judging the gods of Egypt. Uh, He is felling these Egyptian deities one by one. Uh, God is exposing them for what they are, counterfeit frauds. Uh, There was, for example, uh, Happy, spelt H-A-P-I, not double P-Y. He was the Egyptian god of the Nile. And yet, as the Nile is turned to blood, this god is shown to be no god at all. Uh, then there is Heket, the frog-headed god of fertility. And yet it is God who commands the frogs to come out of the Nile. Then there is Re, the sun god. And yet God shows that he is the true god of all when he brings three days of total darkness on the land. And the tenth plague is the most devastating of them all. And it is, of course, the right hook that finally drops Pharaoh, the death of the firstborn male in every household. And yet, even here, the humbling and the humiliation of the Egyptian gods is at work. There was the Egyptian god called Osiris, who was the god of the dead. He was the one known by the Egyptians as the mighty one. And yet it is the Lord, Yahweh, now who shows who is truly mighty, because it is the Lord who grants life and who takes it away. And the Egyptians worshipped the Pharaoh himself as a god. He was venerated as a deity, and his son, therefore, was the deity in waiting. And yet this deity in waiting would never rise again from his bed. The Lord Yahweh is the true God of all, and He will not tolerate usurpers. You see, each of the Egyptian deities reigned the Egyptians' thought over different aspects of life. And yet, the Lord Yahweh is saying, I am God over every aspect of life. In those days, the thinking went that Each people group had their own gods, and the land of that people group was the domain of those gods. The Egyptians thought that their gods reigned in Egypt, and yet Yahweh is saying, 
No, I am the one true God in all the earth, including over the territory of Egypt. And through the plagues, God is showing that He reigns supreme over all. And so, God is felling the Egyptian deities. He is showing that these deities are nothing more than utter nonsense. They are false gods. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 13, God says this, uh, Let my people go, so that they may worship me, or this time I will send them full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. The Egyptians now know that. There is nobody like God in all the earth. So, God is rightly jealous. He will not give His glory to another. He will not tolerate idols. Idolatry is not okay with Him. But we also see another aspect of God's character giving shape to these events as they unfold. Not only is God jealous, but He's merciful. Uh, God does not hasten to judgment. Uh, God exercises amazing forbearance. Uh, He turns up the heat in a measured manner. His heart is not to destroy the Egyptians, but for them to know Him too. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 15 again says this, uh, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth, but I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show you and your people my power. The Lord Yahweh gives all who have ears to hear and eyes to see the opportunity to respond rightly to him, to heed his warning, and to escape his judgment. And sure enough, what do we see? Uh, Some of the Egyptians do start to respond rightly to God's revelation. Uh, When God issues his warning of the impending perfect storm, we glimpse green shoots of reverence for God amongst some of the Egyptian officials. Chapter 9, verse 20. Uh, Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. And so God's revelation is doing its work even in the hearts of Pharaoh's officials. Some of them have now been moved from an ignorance of Yahweh to fearing the word of Yahweh. God mixes his judgment, you see, with forbearance. And so it is clear to all. God is the mighty judge. Uh, He is the one who will not tolerate his glory being given to another. Uh, He is rightly jealous, and he is roused to judge those who refuse to bow the knee to him. But he is also patient and forbearing. As we see later in the Bible, through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 33, uh, God says this, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. 
So we're seeing firstly, uh, God is the mighty judge. But we see secondly, that God is also uh, the mighty rescuer. Uh, Egypt is the world superpower of the day. And yet for all their political, their economic and military might, they are powerless to deny the demands of Yahweh, the one true God. Inevitably, God's will translates into reality. God rescues those He has chosen. Everything God has said comes to pass. The Lord bends everything to conform to the purpose of His will. Even the stubborn resistance of Pharaoh is pressed into the service of the Lord's purposes. Chapter 11, verse 9. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. You see, human opposition causes no hand-wringing in God's court. And in the act of the Passover, uh, God's rescue and His judgment meet. Yet God does not just have to rescue the Israelites from the Egyptians, but from His judgment too. You see, the Israelites were as guilty as the Egyptians when it came to idolatry. Uh, Some years later, after their liberation, and they're then in the land, uh, the challenge of Joshua to the people reveals the state of affairs back then when they were in Egypt. Uh, Joshua 24, verse 14. This is what Joshua says to the people, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. It seems that during their long centuries of captivity in Egypt, the Israelites had embraced the gods of Egypt. And hence, like the Egyptians, Israel was also now in jeopardy of God's judgment. And yet God is moved by His mercy and His faithfulness to His covenant. He provides a means by which His people can be saved from His judgment, and it is the Passover. It's interesting that when we think about what the Passover actually reveals about God, uh, one of the things it reveals is God's moral integrity. You see, His judgment comes on idolatry, and idolatry is a capital offense. It requires the death penalty. And yet, in rescuing His people from His judgment, God does not simply turn a blind eye to their offense. He doesn't merely grant clemency. Out of His moral integrity, God says justice must be done. Uh, The death death sentence must be carried out. A life must be given for a life, and that is what He does. He carries out His sentence, but on a substitute, on the Lamb of the Passover. So, out of His mercy, uh, God provides a way for His people to escape His judgment for their idolatry. 
But of course, the people have a part to play. They have to obey God's instructions. If the blood of their lamb was not on the doorposts of their house, then their firstborn would die too. And yet, the Israelites demonstrate their obedience to God and their faith and trust in Him by their obedience. Chapter 12, verse 28. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So, as we pull it together in application, uh, what do we learn from these events? We, of course, live 3,500 years later. Of what relevance are these events for us? Uh, The real treasure of these Old Testament passages is not just the revelation of God's purposes, but also His person. In the acts of God, we see the character of God. Actions speak louder than words. And therefore, as we grow in our knowledge of God, we deepen in our relationship with God, in our love for Him and our trust for Him. You see, the God behind these events does not change. And they reveal something of the one who changes not and whose passions they fail not. So what do we learn of God's character from these dramatic events some 3,500 years ago? Firstly, God is a jealous God. Uh, God is the one who has made everyone and therefore is owed the allegiance of everyone. And this God, Yahweh, will not tolerate the honor, the praise, and the glory that are His due being given to another. Isaiah 42, 8, again, he says, I am the Lord Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So the question this morning is this. If God was to judge all idolatry, who of us would be left standing? At the end of the day, each and every one of us is an idolater. Uh, It was the great 16th century uh, Protestant theologian Calvin who said, the human heart is a factory of idols. If we're honest, we all elevate good things in our lives to the exalted position of ultimate things, things which we attach ultimate importance to. We replace the place of God with the place of these things. We look to them for our identity, our security, and our happiness. In different ways, we are all like Pharaoh. We declare ourselves, in effect, a deity. We want to retain the reins to our life. Like Pharaoh, we muse, who is the Lord Yahweh that I should obey Him? And in response to our idolatry, God's judgment is coming on us. And therefore, all of us need a substitute. As we've said at the beginning of this series, we know that the pages of the Old Testament whisper Christ's name. And in these chapters, it's not so much a whisper as a shout. You see, it's not a coincidence that Jesus goes to the cross 
at the time of the Passover festival. And for the avoidance of doubt, the Apostle Paul would later draw a line between the Exodus Passover and Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And when we put our trust in Christ, when we respond like the Israelites did that day, following God's obedient instructions, uh, we then effectively escape His judgment. When we put our trust in Christ, it's as if we are daubing His blood over the doorposts of our life. We are then saved from God's judgment. We then enjoy the relationship with Him which He promised in His covenant with Abraham thousands of years ago. And then when we have that relationship with Him, that relationship is deepened and nourished as we draw on the knowledge that God has revealed about Himself in these Exodus events. You see, the revelation of God 3,500 years ago was not just for the Israelites and the Egyptians then. It was for the whole world of every generation, for us. Look at chapter 9, verse 16 again. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's revelation is not just for them then. It is for us now. It is not just for the Egyptians and the Israelites. It is for every person on the earth of every generation. And so these events speak to us in a living and active way about the God who is behind them. And they speak to every generation. And for those of us who are trusting in Christ, we still need to ask that question, what idols are hiding in the recesses of my heart? For as Calvin says, our hearts are at the end of the day factory of idols. We know, of course, that now that we're trusting in Christ, we need not fear His judgment. But idols will continue to damage and impoverish our relationship with Him. God is a rightly jealous God. And with God, idols are not okay. So God is a jealous God. And finally and secondly, very briefly, God is a mighty God. The plagues proclaim God's power. The power that His name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That God is the mighty judge and the mighty rescuer. He is mighty. He is powerful. In judgment and in rescue. And so my question for each of us today is this. How mighty is your God? If you're trusting in Christ, how mighty is your God? Is it translating into trust for things in your life which worry you? You see, what we see in those Exodus events is this. God bends everything to achieve His will. And in the fullness of time, nobody can successfully oppose Him and prevail. And so that is a great comfort for God's people. He fights for us, He protects us, 
and He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. And whilst it's a comfort for God's people, it is a concern for God's enemies because it is, of course, perilous to oppose the mighty living God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, thank You for condescending to us that You should reveal uh, Your character and Your heart to us uh, through these events. Thank You that You took that initiative uh, to rescue humanity, to provide a way back to You. Uh, You indeed do not tolerate idolatry. It is not okay with You. You are rightly jealous. And therefore, uh, we do see that you are the mighty judge, but also the mighty rescuer, the one who provides a way through Christ of escaping your judgment. And therefore, we do pray, uh, lead us to lives of deeper devotion to Christ. Help us to find that path where we intentionally uh, dethrone the idols of our hearts. We surrender them back to you, and we live lives of greater devotion to you uh, out of joyful service every day and deepening in our knowledge and our joy in you, we pray. To your glory. Amen.